there and welcome to Between the Lines, on air, online and via your ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. Well, today on the show, a look at the 2019 version of socialism. I want you to think of a word and that word is socialist. Three, three times with me. Socialist, socialist, socialist. Now, why is it called socialism? Well, I think they're... See, I think that's complicated and we should look at it. One more time. Socialist, socialist, socialist. Across the Western world, socialism is making something of a revival. In Britain, Labor is headed by Jeremy Corbyn. What do we owe to socialism in this country? Every single one of you in this room, at some point, has benefited from the principles of the National Health Service, free at the point of use as a human right. And so long as Brexit splinters British Conservatives, the 70-year-old socialist Corbyn, he stands a decent chance of occupying number 10 Downing Street. Across the pond in the United States, a leading Democratic presidential candidate is Bernie Sanders. So let me take this opportunity to define for you what democratic socialism means to me. It builds on what Martin Luther King Jr. said. This country has socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. End of quote. Now, given the Democrats lurched to the left in recent years and the dramas of the Trump presidency, the prospect of a 78-year-old socialist, Bernie Sanders, in the White House, that can't be written off, can it? Meanwhile, all the available polling evidence among millennials, from Australia and New Zealand to Britain and the United States, that suggests that socialism is gaining increasing popularity among our future leaders. And that's why the emphasis in democratic socialism is on democracy. So what's going on? Why is socialism gaining more public traction? Is the Anglosphere on the cusp of a radical political and ideological realignment? And if it is, how should we feel about it? Well, we have a great debate. Joshua Moravchik is author of Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall and Afterlife of Socialism. It's a revised version of his 2002 book published by Encounter. And John Quiggin is a senior fellow in economics at the University of Queensland, and he writes for The Guardian Australia. Josh in Washington, John in Brisbane, welcome to Between the Lines. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Tom. Glad to be with you. Now, let's start with where you both come from. Josh, you were raised as a socialist in the 60s. Socialism was your father and grandfather's faith. How did you, in the words of the leading neoconservative Irving Crystal, how did you get mugged by reality? Well, I was a very active and devoted socialist myself from something like the age of 15 till 30. Uh, but uh, there were really two parts to my evolution. One was realizing how much more terrible communism was than uh, anything in the capitalist world. I had started out, I was always anti-communist, but I had started out thinking, well, there are two bad systems, the uh, capitalist and the communist, and I'm against both. I could imagine something better than either. But I came to uh, see that uh, 
communism was infinitely more evil and, and destructive of human beings and of human values. And uh, that moved me. And then uh, I was moved further just by uh, growing up, you might say. It, it's an old saying to any man who's not a socialist when he's 20 has no heart and any who's still a socialist when he's 40 has no brain. I got closer to 40. And just just to recap, in the 60s, you joined the a group called the Young People's Socialist League. Am I right in saying Bernie Sanders was also part of that movement, Josh? I think he and I joined the same year, although I didn't, uh, which would have been 1962. Uh, but I didn't know him. I was a high schooler in New York, and he was a college student in Chicago. Uh, and then he drifted off, I think, further to the left to some of the new groups that were appearing in the 60s. I stayed straight with that group, and uh, in 1968, I became the leader of that group, which I was for five years after that. And this is the Nixon-Kissinger era, and you obviously changed your thinking more profoundly in the 70s. You know, it was a gradual thing in the 70s, and then then in the 80s, I... uh, continued my gradual evolution. I was uh, influenced in a more conservative direction by the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Now, John, where are your roots? I mean, can you tell us about your early political life? Uh, Which way were you aligned? Yeah, well, I haven't changed very much over the course of my my life. I guess must be about 10 years younger than Joshua, starting in the early 70s. So I suppose... uh, by that stage, I guess, Soviet communism had been pretty thoroughly discredited, so it wasn't really uh, an issue to, to look at that. Uh, but I was an enthusiastic supporter of the Whitlam government, which was elected when I was 16. Obviously, that was the high point of um, social democracy around the world, the, the early 1970s, before the big crisis of uh, the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system. Uh, but I was never convinced by the majority of the arguments in favour of rolling that back in favour of financial deregulation and so forth. And uh, those things were, were, of course, the dominant stream of ideas for most of the time of being uh, active. But um, I've been critical of them, and I guess from my perspective, many of those criticisms have been vindicated, particularly by the global financial crisis, but also by the, the failure of of policies like privatisation, charter mm. schools and so forth. And now is as good a time as any is to say that John Quiggan has been the leading critic of what's called economic rationalism, so the deregulation of of the economy in the Australian uh, system back in the 80s and the 90s, both Hawke, Keating as well as Howard and uh, Costello. John, have you ever doubted your political and ideological worldview? Well, I mean, I, I suppose I've tried to be more open to doubt because, I mean, I've Obviously, seen lots of people change their uh, change their views. I've tried to be open to alternative views. I suppose, for example, uh, when I started out, I still had you know, the one element that um, is in common with the old left is is a belief that central planning will be a good idea. Uh, I have abandoned that, and in many ways, my criticisms of central planning and of dogmatic economic rationalism are, are much the same. So I'm. I'm I guess, uh, much more prone to an incrementalist and pragmatic view than, uh, uh, than I so was. So would you call uh, yourself a Keynesian or a socialist? Oh, well, both, I think. I think I don't think, I, obviously, um, uh, certainly a Keynesian, uh, certainly a Keynesian in terms of my views on macroeconomics. 
uh, associates, I guess, in terms of uh, my, my long-term aspirations for a good society. Mm-hmm. Josh, uh, you believe that any proper discussion of socialism uh, today really needs to be put in a broader historical context. Which parts of history are you referring to? <laughs> well, all of it. I mean, that is, This idea was born in the French Revolution. People have tried in every corner of the world for some 200 years to make socialism happen. And it's never been achievable. It's a, it's a pipe dream. It's just a, a hopeless idea. Yeah, and full disclaimer, I should stress that in my columns for the Sydney Morning Herald, I myself have made similar arguments, but my critics will come back to me, and I'll throw this back to you, Josh. Can't you distinguish between say, the contemporary socialism that's championed by the Corbyns and the Sanders and these millennials, can you distinguish this present-day socialism from the kind of authoritarian socialism of the past? Corbyn is a, <laughs> is a huge lover and promoter of authoritarian socialism. I don't think Corbyn ever saw an authoritarian leftist regime that he didn't swoon over. Uh, but uh, let's leave... <laughs> Leave Corbyn to the side. Certainly, you say the the millennials. I think there are lots of people who have an image of uh, socialism that's uh, free, humane, democratic, and uh, of course you can distinguish that from the barbarian kind that was pioneered by Lenin and then Im- had many many imitators around the world. Uh, you you can distinguish it, but the problem is that the uh, authoritarian kind of socialism we've actually seen in the real world. Mm. Socialism today, you say, is different from the past. How oh, so? I don't, I don't say that at all. I mean, the uh, yeah, obviously, in ordinary language, the kind of language which is being used here, socialism uh, is distinct from communism. And I guess I'm surprised that Joshua says this. I mean, large parts of the world uh, have been governed by parties with either the name socialist or purporting to be socialist, including Australia, the UK, most countries in Western Europe, and most of the positive social progress has been achieved by those parties. So um, you, know, you look at the National Health Service, you look at uh, Medicare, you look at all sorts of things. These are introduced by notionally socialist parties. So uh, yeah, it's certainly true that communism has been a disastrous failure. I don't see any resurgence of sympathy for communism. Mm. But uh, obviously we can, we can mince terms if we like, but very clearly, you know, despite whatever residual sympathies uh, people like uh, Corbyn and Sanders might have for, for the left of the past, uh, what they're talking about is very much a revival of the revival and extension of the social democracy mixed economy that was seemed to be advancing right through the 50s and 60s when Joshua and I were first politically active, uh, was reversed by uh, by Thatcher and Reagan. And, of course, as far as authoritarianism goes, um, uh, clearly, in terms of the Western world, it's been the part of the right that have primarily promoted an authoritarian view of politics. And that, perhaps, Josh, is why a lot of these contemporary socialists like Sanders would describe themselves as democratic socialists. So is there a a significant distinction to draw between this contemporary socialism and, say, the communism of the past? They had the idea that they were going to create socialist economies and a sense of equal sharing of the the, uh, fruits of the economy. And uh, they distinguished themselves always from the communists in that they didn't believe in dictatorship and they 
generally didn't believe in violence, and they were going to create this transition to a new system in peaceful legal means by persuading people, winning elections, passing legislation. When they came into power, they set about trying to do this. And in case after case, they discovered they couldn't do it, that it didn't work, that the economy started to tank. And so they backed off to something much more modest, which was preserve the capitalist system as the generator of wealth, but then create a welfare state or a social safety net or uh, call it what you will, various kinds of social insurance to protect people against the vicissitudes of life and, and economics. And you can certainly do that. And I have no issue with that. In fact, you know, every democratic country in the world has a basically market economy and also a welfare state uh, grafted on top of it. And that seems to be what people want everywhere. And that works. If you want to call it socialism, fine. You can call every, you can call the United States socialist and UK socialist and Australia socialist. Uh, if, if that's what you mean, you're just saying uh, you want a democratic system which has some public sector. You're listening to Between the Lines on RN with me, Tom Switzer. My guests are Joshua Morafjik, author of Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall and Afterlife of Socialism. That's just out. And John Quiggan, he's the author of Economics in Two Lessons, Why Markets Work So Well and Why They Can Fail So Badly. Uh, John, following on from that point that Josh Morafjik just made, you can't tax a loss, surely. You can only tax a profit. And this is what the sort of economic rationalists, the defenders of capitalism will say to you, they'll say only profit, only by taxing profit, only capitalism can provide the resources available to pay for social services like health, education, defence and whatnot. How would you respond to that argument? Well, um, I suppose um, obviously the differences between Joshua and I aren't as, aren't as radical you know, part of his question of definition. But I suppose I'd turn it around and say, yeah, my experience, which is, a bit later, the economic rationalists came in saying we can get rid of most of the existing public sector, public ownership of things like electricity networks, uh, uh, controls over banking, most of the stuff that socialists have done to move away from the market economy. And just as uh, the ambitious socialist governments in the post-war period found, uh, it didn't work. Uh, we went along and went along and everything seemed to be going fine. Uh, but then we had, for example, the global financial crisis, uh, growing inequality, uh, generally very poor outcomes emerging from that, uh, and that's why we've seen a shift back towards uh, uh, back towards something more in the direction of socialism. I think it's clear that uh, it's clear that most people talking about socialism now are not talking about the complete elimination of private ownership, uh, but rather a mixed economy with a larger role for uh, public sector and non-profit activity, a smaller role in particular for the financial sector. And uh, I suppose, as I say, I, I mentioned earlier, I've given up uh, faith in uh, central planning and that kind of dogmatism. I think the same kind of dogmatism characterised economic rationalism uh, here in the US and the UK and, and has been seen to fail. Uh, Josh, well, following on from John, uh, in 2002, you wrote a history of socialism 
which you thought might also be considered an epitaph for socialism. Many of us did back then. Um, what's happened in the past 17 years to make so many people attracted to socialism? Well, I think there are two main things. One is uh, in the U.S., but I think also in several other countries around the world, there's been a uh, notable increase in economic inequality. And there's a feeling of unhappiness with that, a feeling that it's unfair or, or unjust for uh, there to be such a great disparity between rich and poor. Hopefully, that long period is over. But the second is, I think people just forget lessons that uh, were hard-earned, hard-learned uh, in the 20th century. There are new generations that uh, just uh, sort of don't know any of that uh, stuff. And I also think that some of the polls I, I've looked at, certainly in the U.S., uh, are a bit misleading in that it's not clear what, what people think they mean when they say uh, they like socialism. The, the, the polls that say, well, do you like socialism? And certain numbers say yes. And that you like capitalism and a, a lower number say yes. And then they say, do you like free enterprise? And a much higher number than either say yes to that. So it, it does uh, leave me wondering what people mean or think they mean when they say they like socialism. Okay, so there are two issues here. There's the economy over the last 20 years, and then there's the lessons of the 20th century and definitions. Let's deal with the economy, John, because Josh makes the point that we've had wage stagnation, e economic inequality, especially in Europe and especially in the United States. That has arguably led to this populist insurgency in these countries. You've written about this a lot in The Guardian and elsewhere. But what about Australia here? Because we've had a 28-year bull run. We've had low unemployment. I think it's about 5%. We've weathered several economic storms, most notably the global financial crisis a decade ago. So can we say that here in Australia, capitalism has really failed? Oh, well, obviously our success um, in the global financial crisis reflects in large measure uh, the adoption of Keynesian policies to get out to avoid the crisis. Fortunately, we had plenty of warning, but uh, that kind of got lost. In fact, of course, we did this also very fortunately for us. China did the same thing. So in that sense, I think um, yeah, the global financial crisis gave support to uh, a Keynesian view traditionally associated with social democracy. I think it's also true that um, there hasn't been the same resurgence of interest in the term socialism here in Australia as, as in the US and UK. We're largely reflecting those debates. So I think uh, uh, we have seen, though, uh, not nearly as severe uh, growth in inequality here. Uh, the other thing that's important to remember uh, is that the version of market liberalism, economic rationalism introduced under the whole competing governments uh, was generally much less extreme than in most of the rest of the English-speaking world. And so they preserved in particular uh, and in some ways expanded the welfare state, I mean, Medicare being, being a prime example. So uh, I don't think you have... Uh, we don't have quite the degree of polarisation of economic issues uh, in Australia that uh, we've seen in, in the other English-speaking countries. We never went as far... Uh, away from social, traditional social democracy as those countries did. And uh, I think part of our prosperity reflects that as well as good economic management. What about Joshua Moravchik's second point about the young people being slightly confused about the labels and the 20th century? Because Josh points out that 
Socialism uh, has taken many forms in many nations throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, Latin America. None has succeeded. Your response? Well, I think, obviously, in the US context, people use it in any context, people see what's referred to as socialism. And, of course, Joshua's colleagues on the political right have attacked us about everything as socialism. Uh, you know, Medicare for all, for example, they're certainly routinely attacked as socialism. So, so unsurprisingly, if people like those things, uh, they're going to call themselves socialist. Again, I make the point socialism hasn't failed universally. Socialism, in in the way in which the term is being used today, has been a smashing success. That all of the big improvements in social welfare have come from come from socialist parties. So, so I think coming more to the experience, I think it's all very well to point to. Stalin and Hitler and people like that in the 20th century and try and line them up with one side of politics or the other. But if you look at uh, the current political environment, you can certainly find examples of leftist dictatorships uh, or at least notion leftist dictatorships like uh, Venezuela certainly emerging in that direction. But if people are looking at authoritarian governments uh, around the world, Putin, Bolsonaro, Duterte, Modi and so forth, uh, they all appear to be, the vast majority of them appear to be associated with the political right, very much supported by uh, the Trump administration. And so it's hard to try and persuade people that it's the left that's authoritarian when you have all these authoritarian right-wing populist governments popping up all over the place. Joshua Moravchik. Well, as I said before, you you can call things socialist if, you, if it makes you happy, as long as you preserve a basically capitalist economy, you can you can do other things. In terms of who are authoritarians, I, I thought that this sort of offhand uh, dismissal of uh, Stalin and Hitler as if th- these are things that happened a few years ago, so we shouldn't think about them, sort of reminds me of uh, uh, you know, the quip we have here in the, the U.S., which is, uh, well, uh, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Well, obviously, I'm not meaning to minimise the uh, massive crimes of the 20th century. I'm merely saying that trying to tie Stalin to the present-day left is no more sensible than trying to tie Hitler to the present-day right, uh, uh, if anything less so. I think um, some figures on the authoritarian right uh, are much closer to, to Nazis than anybody uh, in the Western world's left is, is, is to Stalinism. So I'm really making the point. People aren't going to be convinced by pointing out that uh, these 20th century figures were monsters uh, unless you can provide some kind of actual link between those people and the people we're talking about now. So, I mean, the point that J- Josh Moravchik's making, though, is that all these economies essentially are the ones in the Western world have a degree of capitalism and a degree of social welfare states. Um, where is the example of a predominantly socialist economy that's done well? Oh, well, I think I think clearly uh, the question is indeed one of balance. So um, depending on how you... Uh, the first question is how much, for example, Josh is seemingly suggesting that we shouldn't have any public involvement in, in productive activities, and obviously that was a central theme of economic rationalism, getting the state out of out of all kinds of productive activity, indeed, uh, in the ideal version, to get them out of areas like health and education. I think that's been uh, very clearly a failure, so I guess I'd turn it back and say, yeah, where can you find, for example, a society where for-profit education has been a success? That was an enthusiasm of economic rationalism, which I think has been a very clear failure. So I think we're as I say, we're arguing really about what kind of mix we want rather than about uh, a difference between two polar opposites. 
You're listening to Between the Lines on RN with me, Tom Switzer. My guests are Joshua Moravchik and John Quiggan. Uh, neither of you so far has mentioned Scandinavia and other Nordic nations. Uh, Josh, how do they fit in here? Because many people will say that uh, Scandinavia uh, is the epitome of modern-day socialism. Again, you know, you can you can use whatever words you want, but the uh, Scandinavians have uh, systems that are, that are fairly similar to each other in which they're very careful uh, to nurture their uh, capitalist economies. And uh, if you look at uh, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, they come in, all three of them, among the uh, 12 or 13 countries in the world where it's easiest to do business. What they also have is a very substantial public sector, a a very generous uh, social safety net or welfare state, uh, and also uh, they pay for it. They pay very high taxes, and uh, not just as uh, Bernie Sanders might have it here, a matter of taxing the rich. So they have this, this system and it, it works fine for them. And John, we should say that the company tax level in Norway and Sweden is around 25%, which is a lot lower than ours. Well, ours is, um, is 30 for lots of it, primarily, so it's not a very large. Well, 5%. Percent. Yep. For social, um, that's not socialism, though, is it? Uh, well, I think, obviously, I think uh, socialism, as I see it, is uh, an aspiration rather than a realised system, but clearly it's a lot further on the road to socialism. Uh, than um, any country was, for example, before World War Two, And I think um, most people using the word socialism would see further moves in that direction rather than the construction of some kind of hypothetical ideal. And final question for you both. I'll just go to America first. Josh, if Bernie Sanders wins the White House in November next year, how will a socialist America look for the next four years? A very great uh, polarisation of our politics, uh, very uh, angry and conflictual, and probably a whole lot of uh, deadlock in Washington uh, between these two polarized sides. I don't really envision a socialist America coming out of it as much as a further torn America. Yeah, Josh, it reminds me of something that Robert Gates, the former U.S. Defense Secretary, he was once asked what was the greatest threat the United States faced, and he said it was that mild distance between the Capitol building and the White House in Washington. (laughs) John, just say someone to the left of Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese becomes Prime Minister in the next decade, how would a socialist Australia look in, say, 30 years? In many ways, still uh, relatively similar to what uh, things look. I think this is a very long-term project. But, for example, uh, with a much smaller financial sector, with, uh, I think, uh, a recognition of banks taking up a larger and larger share of the economy is a mistake, uh, one in which uh, one in which the uh, great the growth in inequality we're already seeing is, is being reversed by more progressive taxes, but particularly one in which uh, the proceeds of technological progress, instead of being taken primarily in terms of raising material consumption levels, uh, reflected in shorter working hours in general and in greater room for non-market activity. So uh, something where, uh, in the typical socialist phrase, the economy works for people rather than people for the economy. John, Josh, a terrific discussion. Thanks so much for being on RN. Thank you.
And yes, glad to do it. And uh, thanks for having me. That was Joshua Moravchik, author of Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall and Afterlife of Socialism, and John Quiggin from the University of Queensland, who writes for The Guardian Australia. Well, that's all from us this week on Between the Lines. I hope you enjoyed that rather stimulating debate on socialism. Fascinating, wasn't it? Now, remember, if you want to hear that episode again, you can hear us via your ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our program page at abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to your company next week. Mm-hmm.